Well, hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Thank you for joining us in worship this morning. Um, as I was getting ready this week um, for this message, I was thinking about our church. I've been pastoring here for 10, 11 years, and um, we're, we're, I was going to say weird, but I'm going to check my words. We're unusual. Did you know that? This is an unusual place. This church has some very um, unusual people. And... Um, let me give you some examples of things I was looking at this week, just to encourage you. Um, if, if I compare this week, or this year, the first six months of this year, to the first uh, six months of 2019, do you guys remember the pre-COVID world? Um, two years ago, um, we were averaging about 3,000 people in attendance on a weekend across the two campuses and five services. If I were to look at those numbers right now, we're at about 2,000. So we're down roughly around 30, 35% in attendance. I, I don't know all the reasons for that, but here's what I'll tell you that's weird. Our giving's exactly the same. And so I just gotta say for a minute, I don't understand that, but thank you. Because people have been faithful and continued to give. I've got like three theories of how that's working. Maybe the people that left forgot to give up, turn off their auto tithe, and I'm not sure <laughs> what obligations I have to contact them. That, maybe that's it. I don't think so, though. Um, I think it's a combination, actually, of two things. Many of the people that have been faithful to the ministry from the long, for the long term have remained. And I think um, the other reason is people have just been slow to return to large gatherings. So I'm excited to see where our church is going to be in the fall. But please, thank you. If you've been faithfully supporting this ministry over the course of the last several months, thank you for that. It's greatly appreciated. Here's something else weird about our church, and you guys know this one. Um, we make you guys play preacher bingo every weekend. Did you notice that? Like, like you never know who's going to speak when you come to church. And some of you have learned how to kind of cheat the system. You call somebody that you know that attends Saturday night, or you watch the nine and then usually attend the 11. Like, there's ways to kind of game the system. But typically, you have no idea who you're going to hear. And that's especially true right now in the summer as we've been in this series called The Gospel Changes Everything. Just a reminder, um, maybe for those of you who are visiting or don't remember, this is a principle that we started right at the beginning of the church. It was very important to us right at the beginning of the church when we were small, we still had three guys that were preaching because the thing that we wanted to be consistent was not the messenger, but the message. It's God's words that's always the star of the show. And what we've been doing this summer is we've been giving you um, some exposure to our younger guys, giving them some experience in teaching in the larger room. And, and here's why. You need to understand this behind the scenes. We're committed to developing young pastors and young teachers. It's one of the things and a conviction that has been central to what we're trying to accomplish as a church. And the young guys that you've been hearing are actually contributing on a week-to-week -week basis. We get together, group of pastors, about 10 days before we preach, we go over outlines, and we take everybody's idea and incorporate them into what typically Cal and I or some of the other pastors deliver. So we're stealing from the young guys all the time anyways. It's probably fair to let them get some credit as well. But I was sitting here last weekend, and um, I don't know how many of you were here last weekend to hear our youth pastor Dylan preach, and he was talking from John 15, Abiding in Christ. And he goes off onto this illustration that abiding in Christ is like a dish soaking in dishwater. Do any of you guys remember that? And I'm sitting there going like, wow, that is a really um, awesome illustration. Because all week when I would 
pass the sink. I was going to say when I do dishes, but my wife would have audibly laughed. Um, when, when I pass the sink, I'm thinking about abiding in Christ. It was something that stuck with me during this week. So I hope that you understand why we do what we do. It's important. And if these young guys are ministering to you, just drop them a note. Give them some encouragement. Be part of what we're trying to accomplish as we believe that God is using us not only to shepherd here, but looking ahead and saying we're preparing guys to shepherd other flocks and other congregations where God might lead. Let me give you a third reason why I think we're a little bit unusual. Um, I think our church is becoming more unusual, more distinct because of what we think about this book, particularly the beginnings and the endings of this book. I'm going to be doing a two-week series. I've just called it Beginnings and Endings. This week is on Genesis. Next week is going to be on Revelation. Or the next time I'm here is on Revelation. Strike that. I'm bouncing around a little bit between the two campuses doing this. But we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning. Turn there. And what's happening is we have biblical convictions, and many of our convictions are actually um, founded in the first and last books of the Bible. And I don't mean to say that we're alone. There's other biblical churches that share our convictions. But what I would say is our voices tend to be getting a little bit softer today and our culture is getting a little bit louder. A, a church that's going to hold to biblical convictions is somewhat under attack right now in our culture, in our country. And it is primarily under attack because of the positions that we take that are founded in the book of Genesis, in the book of Revelation, if you're keeping notes, the big idea this morning is simply this. When we lose sight of our foundation and our hope, the gospel gets lost in the middle. When we lose sight of our foundation and our hope, the gospel gets lost in the middle. I'm going to give a, 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 a quick story. And, and quite honestly, as I give this story, the thing that bothers me the most about it is I don't remember how I got myself into this circumstance or this situation. But about 15 years ago, before I was a pastor, I was just a, a real estate developer, a, a money manager. I was invited by a local Christian university. I don't want to give you its name, but I'll give you a hint that the school has the same name as one of my sons. And um, I know some of you are like, he's got a son named Aquinas? No, no, it's, <laughs> that would be weird. It's, it's a little east of there. But um, I was teaching, and I was invited into this class. I was brought into their capstone biology class in their science department as a businessman to make an argument for literal seven-day creation. And as I stood in this class and made my presentation, I, I, I gave some scientific reasons why I believe that the earth isn't as old as scientists would lead you to believe. But primarily, my argument was actually based off the language of Genesis 1. When God says it was morning and evening, it was morning and evening, he seems to be indicating that these are days that we can identify with. In the book of, or in Genesis 1, when he talks about creation, it's interesting. He says day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And if you were to look back at the Hebrew, that word for day is yom. It's very, very similar in its usage to our English word day. And our English word day can, can mean different things. It can mean a 24-hour period or it can mean a longer period. If I say that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player in his day, that would be longer than a 24-hour period. But if I say that Michael Jordan was the best basketball player on his seventh day, 
that's a little more specific. And as you look in the Old Testament, there's never a time anywhere else in Scripture where that word yam is connected with a specific number that it means anything but a 24-hour day. So I was arguing it from the language of the text. And, and then there's another thing. If you believe in a very long... Uh, uh, or an old earth and that there were millions of years and hundreds of thousands and maybe billions of years um, before Adam and Eve, you've got a theological problem. There's death before sin. And our Bible clearly teaches that um, death is a result of sin. So these were the arguments that I was making in this class. And when it was done, I, I opened it up for questions. And it was at that moment that I realized I brought a uh, knife to a gunfight. And uh, the questions were interesting because they went in a direction that I didn't expect them to go. I, I knew I'd get pushback believing that there was a young earth, but that wasn't the nature of the pushback that I got that morning. Here's what I learned from this class, this biology class. They, they looked and they said, so you really believe that the book of Genesis is real? You're arguing the language of a book, but, but you need to understand from our perspective, we believe that the book of Genesis is a story that Moses made up as he led a people out of slavery in Egypt to give them a heritage, to give them an identity, and to make an argument that their God was greater than the gods of Egypt and the land they were going to, Canaan. The class believed that rather than starting in the beginning God created, you could have just as well have started the book once upon a time. It's a fairy tale. And for me to be arguing specific language out of a fairy tale, well, well that just seemed unreasonable. And I remember as the class ended, I was a little bit flustered that it had gone in that direction. And the prof came up to me and he's like, no, 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 thank you. You did exactly what we wanted you to do. We need to prepare our students for the kind of person they're going to run into when they go back to their churches at home. I'm like, great. That was just wonderful. But it's interesting. What was under attack there wasn't the creation account. It was actually this book. Can it be trusted? Is it God's word? When it says something, does it mean what it says? Do we have the ability to interpret any part of Scripture any way we want to, or do we need to take Scripture at face value? And my concern here is, as it relates specifically to what we're talking about today, when you lose the foundations of many of your beliefs, what gets lost in the middle, if we're not careful, is the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this just isn't my opinion. It's interesting. Second Peter 3. So this was written 2,000 years ago by Peter. He writes in Second Peter 3, verse 3, he says, Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4, they will say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I find it interesting that 2,000 years ago, a man penned, Peter penned these verses saying that when you see 
or when we get near the return of Christ, people are going to make fun of people who believe in the return of Christ and people that believe that God spoke the world into existence. If you believe in a worldwide flood, uh, that's not going to be a popular opinion in the days leading up to the return of Christ. And he was penning these things generations, centuries before where we find ourselves today. The enemy will attack the foundations of our faith and our hope for the future. And in doing so, the gospel too often gets dismissed. And what gets lost, if we don't protect the beginnings and the ends, is, is in essence the very need for a savior. Let me explain. I'm going to walk you through. This morning's a little bit more academic than I would normally be, but the topic's important. Let me quickly walk you through eight things, eight foundations to our faith that you can find just in the first few chapters of Genesis. You guys ready? Okay, here's number one. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. If you want to go through these in more detail, I'm going to spend like 20 minutes on these things. Uh, my wife and my daughter, Catherine, with Women's Bible Study are going to spend like 20 weeks. I've got two pages of notes. She's got 300 pages of notes. They're better teachers than me. And I know what some of you are saying. Can dudes come to ladies' Bible study? No. <laughs> but we put it online. You're all listening to it anyway, so that's fine, okay? So if you want to get into this in more detail, I'm sure they will cover it as well. But here's eight things, eight kind of foundational beliefs that are critical to our faith that we find in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1-1, that God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I, I'm going to go to the New Testament real quick to give you a little bit more detail on that. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, hear this, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What this means, what this implies is the universe has a plan. There is an order to creation. There is purpose that the universe was created by him, but also for him. And that means that you're not the star of the show. You're not the center of your universe. There is something bigger. There is something greater. There is a creator. And all of this is for him. Here's the second thing. You're going to see it in Genesis 1.26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, so we are created in the image of God, and that has implications. That means we're just not at the top of some evolutionary chain. We're not the same as the rest of the animals. There is something about us that is distinct because God created us in his image. Ecclesiastes will tell us that he's placed eternity in our hearts, that we don't just die when we die. All of this gives sanctity and value to human life. Look one verse down, verse 27 of Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What this verse is telling you is that God sets gender. Whether you are male or female, that decision is above your pay grade. It's decided by God. And you can block it, you can disguise it, and you can identify any way you want, but it doesn't change what the Bible says and it doesn't change the science. God has distinctly made you from the beginning of your life, male or female. 
And I know some of you are looking at me going, whoa, be careful. You're getting into some controversial waters. The Bible's not controversial on these subjects. It's clearly stated in Genesis 1. Here's a fourth, Genesis 1, verse 28, one verse down. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 1 and 2, God sets up the idea and the rhythm of work and the Sabbath. He says in Genesis 2.15, And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Genesis 2.3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. I think sometimes we get confused. We think that we work because of the curse. No, no, no. Work was set up. It was established in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Man was given tasks to do. In essence, the creator of the universe created us in his image to be creative. Work is cursed. It becomes difficult in Genesis 3. But the whole idea of work and Sabbath and the rhythm of working hard and then resting, this was established all the way back into Genesis 1. Genesis 2. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So in the second chapter of Genesis, we have God establishing the institution of marriage. He designed it. It was his idea. He sets up the construct of the family. He sets up the construct of what marriage should look like. He, he creates a, a place within a covenant relationship where sex can be enjoyed without shame. All of that in the first two chapters of Genesis 2. And then we turn to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, 1, we read these words. He, speaking of the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So in chapter 3, we've got something new. We've got the introduction of sin. Satan, the enemy, approaches Adam and Eve, and immediately he brings doubt into the equation. Did God really say that? Did God really mean what he said when he said it? And Adam and Eve will take of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat. They will eat of the fruit. And now we've got the introduction of sin. We read in Genesis 3, 8, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There is now a separation between God and man that didn't exist before Genesis 3. Guilt and shame now reside in the heart of man. And as we get to the end of chapter 3, verse 24, it says this, God drove out the man out of the east, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Death is now part of the equation because of the decision to believe and to doubt what God said that was made by Adam and Eve. And please don't miss this. This has strong implications. When we get to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, Paul is making an argument in the first chapters of the book of Romans that Adam's sin is not just his problem, but it's our problem because now we have inherited a sin nature. He says it this way. In Romans 5, 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. See, what happens in Genesis 3, and it's expounded on in Romans, is now in Genesis 3, we have established our need for a Savior. That we need to be rescued. 
That, that there is a separation between us and God that needs to be resolved. To, to say it another way, if you don't believe in Adam and Eve, if you believe that the book of Genesis is a fairy tale, then I've got a question. How in the world do you believe in the second Adam, Jesus who came to resolve the curse of the first Adam, has explained to us in Romans. Romans 5.15 says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, which abounded for many. Simply stated, if Adam did not fall, we cannot be redeemed in Christ. If there is no Adam, there is no need for a savior. Also in Genesis 3, we understand, we create a, we understand a worldview of why our world is so screwed up, why it's so broken. Because of sin, now this brings in conflict in marriage. It makes work difficult. It makes relationships hard to maintain. All of this is a result of what we read in Genesis 3. And I'll just give you two more. These are free, okay? Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, we find that Cain, one of the two sons of Adam and Eve, at this point, they bring, uh, he brings an offering before God and it's rejected. And it says in response to his offering being rejected that um, Cain becomes angry. He becomes depressed. And God reaches out to Cain. This is the first counseling case we have in the Bible. We've got an angry, depressed guy. Listen to what God says in Genesis 4, 6. It says, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. All over our community today, there are people that are trying to help people that are angry, depressed, and hurting. And they're saying, if we can make them feel better, maybe we can get them to behave better. And God says it's the exact opposite, that we aren't run by our feelings, that our feelings need to be in submission to our will. And when we make the choice to do the right thing, by making that choice, our feelings will follow the resolve of our will. God's teaching us how to respond to disappointment, to sorrow, to frustration in life. He's saying, make the choice to be obedient and see if your feelings won't follow. And then in Genesis 6 and 7 and in 5, we read the account of without the intervention of God, where sin will eventually lead. It says in Genesis 5, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Hear, hear this. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That, that's the spiral of sin without intervention by a God who unconditionally loves us and is willing to intervene by sending his own son. It says in verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. But then he chooses Noah and his family and he provides a, a, a way of escape, a rescue through the ark for the judgment that's going to come upon sin. And you can read about this all in Genesis 5, 6, and 7. Hey, here's a question. Worldwide flood or local flood? What do you think? What do you think? I, I think there's difference of opinions on this, even in this room. So what I want to do is I want to take you to the Bible. Let's look at the language and see if we can see what the Bible is trying to communicate. It says this in Genesis 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. 
Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Sound worldwide or local so far? Ah, maybe it's not clear. Let's keep going. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out of the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. I'm going to say the author is working very, very hard to show you that this was a worldwide flood. And yet some will look and go, yeah, but that Moses, he really didn't know. He was just kind of in the Middle East, and he didn't have really a point of reference because the rest of the world hadn't been discovered. So how would he know if it was local or worldwide? And now we're back to the basic issue of what we think about Scripture. First Peter 1 verse 20 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, or man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but hear me, he's but a scribe writing down what God wanted to communicate to us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And where Moses might have been limited in his perspective, I'm pretty sure God Almighty is not. You can either accept that God's word is God's word, or you can reject it. That's a choice that you can make. But understand that choice is important because in accepting or rejecting the first several chapters of Genesis, you are accepting and rejecting many of the foundations of our faith. And it's critical because what we read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 sets up our need for a Savior, sets up the purpose of Jesus Christ. But it's constantly under attack right now. And the way I'm going to summarize the attack, I'm going to put it under this word. The attack is by a, a worldview, a belief system that I would summarize with the word naturalism. Naturalism. And I'm going to talk about two things. I want to talk first about the religion of naturalism, and then I want to talk about its implications. I refer to naturalism as a religion intentionally. Many look at naturalism and they say, well, no, that's the scientific position. That's the position that is backed by science. It is the scientific approach to what we can see in our universe. But I will contend with you all day that the science won't lead you to the conclusion of naturalism. And that naturalism, which, and let me just define that so I don't get ahead of myself. Naturalism is the belief that every law and every force operating in the universe is natural rather than supernatural, moral, or spiritual. So the naturalist will look at everything that he sees in our universe and he will disregard or will not consider the supernatural. That, that nothing has a moral implication, that everything here is randomly by chance through systems over long periods of time. And they couch the argument in scientific language, but it is a religious belief system, a worldview, similar to how Christianity is a religious worldview. And if you follow the science, like I said, it won't lead you to naturalism. Both statements, in the beginning, God created, and the statement of naturalism, which is basically nobody plus, or nothing plus times nobody times time equals everything, both of these are religious statements because you can't prove either one. 
because you can't go back to creation because the beginning of our universe, it's not repeatable and it's not observable. It can't be scientifically proven. It is a statement of faith. There's no witnesses. And please hear me. If you believe in naturalism, if you believe in evolution, and we're just here by random design, just understand there's some questions still remaining that have yet to be solved by that worldview. Like, where did matter come from? Where did energy come from? What um, ignited or started the Big Bang? Where did gravity come from? How did uh, organic material turn into life, to turn into consciousness? Where does intelligence and how did intelligence develop? And there's two underlying premises, two problems with the view of naturalism that I think we need to talk about. And I don't want to talk about the first one because the word is just too hard to say. The first problem is what scientists call uniformitarianism. I tried to count the syllables. I don't know how many syllables it is. It's eight or nine. You can work on that while I'm teaching, okay? Uniformitarianism. And, and what that is, just simply stated so that I don't ever have to say that word again, here's what it means. It means that the present is the key to the past, that the processes that we can observe today through scientific observation have been active in the past at approximately the same rates. The guys that came up with this theory, it was in the late 1700s, early 1800s. The father of this theory was a guy by the name of Charles Lyell and James Hutton. Don't worry, there won't be a test. But I give you the time frame and the name because what's interesting about that is 50, 60 years later, there was this other guy that came on the scene by the name of Charles Darwin. And, and, and that uniformitarian, uniformitarianism became foundational to what Darwin taught. He said, listen, if things have been slowly developing in the exact same way that we can observe it for hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of years, that gives us plenty of time for animals to mutate and adapt. It became foundational to the theory of evolution. And just a reminder, we looked at this earlier. 2 Peter 3 verse 4 says, before the return of Christ, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, this, this next phrase is an absolute summary statement for the view of uniformitarianism. It says this, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So a theory that wasn't recognized by science until the late 1700s was basically referred to by Peter when he wrote about it 1,700 years earlier. And the problem with uniformitarianism, quite honestly, is just science. It's not how our world got here, and the scientists know it. Let me explain. If I were to assume that the earth is as old as people say that it is, or science says that it is now, that's 3.8 billion years. And I were to take 3.8 billion years and then I would compare it to the time that we've been observing through scientific study, the, the universe. We've been observing 5,000 years. And if I were to take that 5,000 years versus 3.8 billion years, that would be like me telling you that I met a guy who was 70 years old, spent 15 minutes with him, and I know absolutely everything about his life. The sample size of our observation is too small. And then when you consider what we can observe, what we know, it doesn't fit the theory that all things have continued from the beginning of creation. British geologist Derek Eger said it this way, the history of any one part of the earth, like the life of a soldier, 
consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. Let me give you some examples of this. Back in the 1960s, there was a man by the name of Bob Christensen. He was working for the U.S. Geological Survey out in the area of Yellowstone, and he was puzzled. Wherever you go in Yellowstone Park, you can sense volcanic or seismic activity, but they couldn't find the caldera or the cone of the volcano that was the cause of all of this other volcanic activity that they could observe. It was puzzling the geologists that were out in Yellowstone Park. And then what happened is in the late 1960s, Bob Christensen had some buddies at NASA. They had sent some things into space. They were taking pictures. And his buddies sent him a picture hoping to help him find the cone or the caldera of the volcano that's located at Yellowstone Park. As soon as he saw the pictures from space, he immediately saw the caldera. And it was like, why didn't I see this in all the years I've been looking for it? Well, here's the problem. The caldera, which is Yellowstone Park, the cone of that volcano, measures 43 by 28 miles. It contains 2 million acres. Bill Bryson, in trying to give you some perspective on this, he said this. He said, imagine a pile of TNT the size of Rhode Island and reaching 8 miles into the sky, and you have some idea of what visitors to Yellowstone are shuffling around on top of. Anybody going to Yellowstone later this summer? Like, I'm just, I just want to give you a little bit of a different perspective. Scientists who believe in a very old earth, they will argue that um, this volcano that is Yellowstone Park has erupted three times in the last two million years. Two million years ago, 1.3 million years ago, and 630,000. How they got that precise, I don't know. Two things, it's due. Second thing is, in describing the eruption of two million years ago, listen to what they say. They say, the Yellowstone eruption of two million years ago put enough ash to bury the state of New York to a depth of 67 feet. It covered all or parts of 19 western states. Scientists will tell you that the last supervolcano to erupt on our planet was about 70,000 years ago, and it brought human population down to just a few thousand people to the brink of, this, of this, uh, extinction. That that eruption blocked out the sun for decades. That's how they explain the, the, the lack of diversity in our genetics. They say our genetics would indicate a much shorter time frame. And just so you know, if you're headed to Yellowstone, according to the latest data by the U.S. Geological Survey, there were 445 tremors in the park in the month of June 2021, most ever recorded. Camp well. <laughs> hey, some, some, some good news. I'm teasing. I don't think our world ends by volcanic, volcanic eruption. I think Jesus Christ cuts through our atmosphere and says, this thing's finished. You're coming home. Here's another thing just to consider that, that, that strikes at this idea of naturalism, the fossil record. Do you understand that you can go anywhere on our planet and find fossils on mountaintops and oceans everywhere? And, and, and I hope you understand just the existence of the fossil record gives evidence to a worldwide catastrophe maybe something like mm, a flood. If I die on this stage right now, you understand that I don't become a fossil. You guys get that, right? Like you all get to go home early. I'm just laying here. I'll just kind of rot and decay. To, to, to become a fossil, you have to be buried quickly in sediments. 
for your outline to be preserved. So the existence of the fossil record that we have in geology would speak to the existence of worldwide catastrophes. And even if you don't believe in a worldwide flood, over and over, catastrophe, catastrophe, that flies in the face of this idea that we can date everything back to 3.8 billion years because it's never been interrupted. See, these are some of the inconsistencies that we're buying. The other problem with naturalism is the incredible complexity that is involved at anywhere we look, be it in a telescope or in a microscope. Darwin could have never conceived of the complexity of human DNA. Darwin could have never conceived of the expanses of the universe, let alone things that cannot be uh, a wing a partial wing doesn't help a bird fly. A partial eye doesn't lead to sight. There's no advantage that would perpetuate some of these mutations. It's interesting, George Sim Johnson, he wrote a book, Did Darwin Get It Right? Catholics in the Theory of Evolution. Listen to what he says. He says, we now know that human DNA contains uh, more organized information than the Encyclopedia Britannica. If the full text of the encyclopedia were to arrive in computer code from outer space, we would regard this as proof of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. But when seen in nature, it is explained as the workings of random forces. The probabilities of our universe and the complexities that we can observe happening without design by random chance are so minuscule that most theory, most people that believe in naturalism, the universities that are pushing this, the Ivy League schools, Northwestern, Cambridge, Oxford, they now accept the idea of multiple universes. They, they logic this way. If the probabilities are so small in, one of, in our one universe, what if there was an infinite number of other universes? It has to work out somewhere, right? Sean Carroll, a Harvard-MIT grad and the professor at California University of Technology, said it this way. Extreme multiverse, extreme multi-universe explanations are reminiscent of theological discussions. Indeed, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of the one we do see is just as ad hoc as invoking an unseen creator. The multi-universe theory may be dressed up in scientific language, but in essence, it requires the same leap of faith. Please know that the quotes that I'm giving you are not from Christians. These are from other scientists observing what we can see of our universe and saying you just can't assume that there's multiple other universes without a shred of evidence. That's a faith move. And these are opposing worldviews. And whether you get it or you don't get it, it doesn't matter because the other side understands it completely. Ernest Mayer, an evolutionary biologist, says this, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we know to be simple fact. Richard Dawkins, another evolutionary biologist, some of you may be familiar with him, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. He says it this way, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I would rather not consider that. So you've got two different worldviews. We believe that God created. Naturalism says, no, everything here is by random. There's no purpose behind it. I'm not worried about the science. I'm worried about the implications of the two worldviews because naturalism will lead you to some implications that are troubling. Let me explain. When naturalism is embraced, personal responsibility and guilt are removed. 
simply stated, if there is no God, then there's no life after death. If, if, if there is no God, there's no ultimate judgment. If there is no God, there's no absolute right and wrong. If there is no God, then each society gets to decide for itself what is allowable and what is not. And if we push into it just a little bit farther, if there is no God, we're just here by random forces, which means that life has no meaning, that our life is meaningless, that it is hopeless. There is no God. We're not created in God's image. There is nothing that makes human life intrinsically valuable. Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, said it this way, there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. Six million Jews died in concentration camps, but six billion broiler chickens will die this year in slaughterhouses. Without God, gender, work, marriage, sex, they're all up to the interpretation of each culture to decide what is best, what is allowable, and what is right. And you need to hear this. There's no room under a naturalistic theory to believe in a creator, to believe in a designer, to believe in a God. Carl Sagan, in one of the final books that he wrote, it was called Pale Blue Dot. He said this, our planet is a lonely speck in the great cosmic dark enveloping enveloping. I said it right. Thank My wife was working with me on that word last night. And I can't say it twice. Speck in the great cosmic dark. In our, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. If there is no God, there is no judgment. There's no consequence for sin. I cannot make a logical argument if you do not believe in God that you should live any other way than by your feelings. Do whatever you can do today, whatever you're allowed to get away with. Put that caveat in there. Do whatever you want that you think will make you happy. Why would you not? And see, these are the implications of the worldview that our culture is quickly embracing. And when you get it, you begin to understand why people are feeling depressed, why people are struggling to find value in life because they can't find meaning in life because they've embraced a lie as it relates to a worldview of how we got here. Please, I don't mean to suggest, this is important, I don't mean to suggest that everyone who believes in naturalism that denies the existence of God is just some selfish person who doesn't value life. Quite honestly, I believe quite the contrary. Many people that have embraced this theory of naturalism, they're fighting to save the planet. They're very involved. They value human life. I'm not suggesting that they're just all selfish people. What I am suggesting is the foundations for why they're decent people are quickly eroding because naturalism doesn't give you the foundations that the word of God do does to value human life, to treat other people with kindness, civility, and respect. And all of this to say this, when we lose the battle for the book of Genesis, what's at stake is the gospel. Two more quotes. Sir Julian Huxley, he was kind of a philosopher that built off of what Darwin's theory, um, the implications of it. He said it this way, in the evolutionary system of thought, there is no longer need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created, it evolved. 
So did all the animals and the plants that inhabit it, including our human selves, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. So did religion. Evolutionary man can no longer take refuge from his loneliness by creeping for shelter into the arms of a divine father figure whom he himself has created. Atheist Richard Bosworth said it this way, Christianity is, must be, totally committed to the special creation as described in Genesis, and Christianity must fight with its full might, fair or foul, against the theory of evolution. It becomes clear now that the whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he, he and Eve ate. Without the original sin, who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into, the life, into a life of constant sin terminated by death, what purpose is there in Christianity? None. What all of this means is that Christianity cannot lose the Genesis account of creation. The battle must be waged for Christianity is fighting for his very life. And the question that I would ask you today is, why does the atheist know that but we can't figure it out? Genesis is important. And here's what I need to explain to you. So, so what's the goal of spending this time talking about these things, talking about the conflict and the opposing worldviews? Here's what I promise you I'm not trying to accomplish. I'm not trying to get you all jacked up about what our schools are teaching our kids. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to create some war mentality against our culture. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should have pity and feel sorry for a culture that has embraced a worldview that continues to tell them that life is meaningless, that it doesn't matter, that they're here without purpose, that they're here without design. There should be a compassion for people who don't have the gospel and, and, and can't figure out why they're struggling with this eternal longing that they can't resolve. It should make us aware that we have something that the world desperately needs in this moment, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a creator, that there is a God that designed us, that loves us, that knows everything about us and was willing to send his son to die for us to bridge the gap that our sin created so that we can live the way we were designed to live in harmony with a holy God. And even though we fall short, God said, I love you and you're mine and I created you and you have value and you have meaning. And this is a message that the world desperately needs. But right now, it's a little awkward. Our views are a little unusual and too many Christians not understanding that when we lose Genesis, we lose the reason for the gospel, are caving on the foundational beliefs that are found in the first five, six, seven chapters of Genesis. And churches are caving. And when that happens, the gospel gets lost. So yeah, we're a weird church. We're weird, man. We're some weird people, right? Because we have a confidence in something that is never shaken. And God anticipated this fight in this day when the Bible was compiled 2,000 years ago. And he says, listen, stay strong. Be an overcomer. Endure to the end. 
because our foundation is sure. Because Genesis, Revelation, and the gospel give us a hope that the world desperately needs. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. From the first chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation, your word will stand. Heaven and earth will pass away. Your word will remain. Man's ideas, man's beliefs, they will fail and your word will remain. Father, make us do what you have to do in our lives to prove to us that you are the God that you claim to be. Father, we love you. We thank you for choosing us, for creating us, for loving us, for dying for us. Father, give us the courage to remain strong in the midst of conflict. Father, put a peace in our hearts that we have a message, a good news of hope that the world desperately needs. And let us, then let us be bold in its proclamation. These are little things. These are momentary and slight afflictions in light of the grace that you've bestowed on us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.